Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Katriona Gold, and I'm a PhD candidate at University College London. Today, I'm thrilled to be interviewing Ellen Schrecker, who is a retired professor of history at Yeshiva University and a leading historian of McCarthyism. Her new book is called The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 1960s, and it was published with the University of Chicago Press in 2021. It's a really incredible work, which I'm very excited to discuss with her. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Ellen. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Right. So I'm wondering if we could start with you telling us a bit or a lot about yourself and your academic trajectory. So how, how did you come to write this book and how does it intersect with your, with your personal and, and professional history and, and interests? Okay, I am, as you can see by the white hair, a member of what is called the silent generation, people who were in college uh, in the 1950s and early 60s. And that meant that I was very traditional. I thought what women did was go to college to find a husband. And then if they had a career, it was going to be something like school teaching. And that's what I was planning to do. But I had a professor uh, when I was an undergraduate who put me up for a graduate fellowship. And um, so even though I was ready to go to, into high school teaching, I went, said to myself, if I get a fellowship, I'll go to uh, graduate school. And so I did. And it took me forever, but I um, did manage to finally get my PhD. But I wasn't rushing it, believe me. Uh, I had kids. I had a husband. We did uh, foreign travel. Uh, and I didn't take my work very seriously. I did. I was bored by it, really. I was writing about uh, European diplomatic history in the early 20th century, and it just didn't keep me very occupied. 
Uh, so after I finished my degree, I got a job teaching freshman composition at Harvard. Uh, this is a part-time job. It became a full-time one. But I, uh, the program required you to teach like a little mini course, a little mini seminar on a subject as long as you were teaching writing. And so what I did was focus on the 1950s. Then I discovered that I had nothing. It was when I had grown up. I knew McCarthyism was important, but I couldn't find a book. I couldn't find anything to assign to my students about McCarthyism. So after about a year of that, very frustrating, I decided I'll write a book. And my, I got a fellowship. And I was told by many colleagues, are you crazy? That's much too big a subject. Narrow it down. So I thought, okay, either I'll write about a city or I'll write about an institution of some kind. And it seemed to me that what I really knew was the university. I'd been there for quite a while already. And uh, so I looked at McCarthyism and higher education and wrote that book. It did got a lot of attention. And then I realized, well, there still wasn't the general book. So I wrote that one. That one also got a lot of attention. Um, and I sort of became, as I tell people, Ms. McCarthyism. In other words, if you were to Google McCarthyism even today, you'd probably come across me. Um, but I decided I really didn't want to sort of focus only on McCarthyism. I wanted to do something else. And I got a job editing a magazine about, uh, it's called Academe, it belonged to an organization called the American Association of University Professors. And as I was working on that, I be, this is a little bit before the turn of the century. I became a very, I was following obviously what was going on within the academic community, and that itself turned into a book. So there I am with a book about the academic profession in the 1950s and a book about uh, working on a book about sort of contemporary academic uh, life in the early 21st century. And um, because I'm a historian, I, of course, always want the historical background of what I'm working on and discovered, like I had discovered with McCarthyism, that there was no book about it, no book about academic freedom, no, really no articles, nothing about academic freedom in the 1960s. There were books about individual institutions. There were books about even individual fields like philosophy or history, but no book about the academic community as a whole. And so that is the book that became the book that we are going to be talking about now. Uh, the Lost Promise of Higher Education. In the, it's a history of higher education in the 1960s. And I realized that I had written, was writing the middle book in an inadvertent trilogy about the political history of higher education in the United States, really since the early Cold War. 
And so that's how I got to write this book. But it didn't quite begin that way because I was also discovering that many of my peers, people who had joined the academic community were young graduate students or young faculty in the 1960s, were on the verge of retirement in the 20-teens and were writing their memoirs. Now, I was not I didn't think that I deserved a memoir. I was not an important player in the 60s. I observed a lot, but I didn't, I wasn't an activist. Uh, however, um, my colleagues were. They were doing interesting, uh, they were making history. That's what they, they knew they were, and they were very conscious of it. And I thought, I'm going to write about them. And it became what in uh, historians call a prosopography, which is a collective biography of a particular group. And so my, I began interviewing lots of people, which was very lucky because uh, not too many of them were are still around. They, a lot are, but uh, people did fall by the wayside, as it were and then realized that I couldn't just write about sort of young left faculty. That was clearly the main focus of this book, but I needed to contextualize them. I needed to put them within the system that they were having their careers with, that they were operating as political activists in. And so the book sort of expanded and expanded and expanded. And at a certain point, I realized, wait a minute, lady, this book is uh, too long already. And I never, what I published is not really the whole story, but we can talk about that later, because there is a story there. And um, the main, people kept asking me, well, what's the main theme of your book? And finally, sort of toward the end, I realized what it was, that it is it was a conjunction of two very important phenomena that created what we would call the 60s within higher education. And one was um, the fact that this was a period of enormous expansion, that after World War II, the United States uh, American society essentially decided that they were going to try to uh, offer a universal mass higher education, high quality higher education uh, to as many uh, Americans as uh, were capable of taking advantage of it. That was the promise that obviously is lost. But that was the promise, this idea that higher education might be available to anybody who could take advantage of it. And of course, what that meant in part was they were looking at a whole cohort of baby boomers uh, who were about to descend on American campuses. And what did that mean? That meant not just expanding the number of institutions, the size of institutions, the uh, mission of institutions, uh, small teacher colleges became 
uh, somewhat larger liberal arts schools, and they began to expand. They wanted to offer graduate training. They become regional uh, universities. We're seeing uh, this whole system expanding, and it's mission changing. And uh, part of that change is a kind of sense of upgrading of institutions. You know, we're not just going to be Brockport State Teachers College. No, we're going to offer a full range of courses and uh, programs and become Brockport State University. And so this upgrading is taking place and you're getting a new generation of faculty members because it's not just the size of the schools, it's also the size of the faculties. And the faculty members, the new faculty members coming in are more, um, what should we say, intellectually ambitious. Many of them are coming in from graduate programs, even if they still haven't finished their degrees, many of them will finish them while they're teaching. Um, and uh, earlier uh, faculties were not as intellectually ambitious. They didn't think they had to write books in order to get tenure. And you're getting a whole different kind of culture. The academic culture is changing. At the same time, of course, the 1960s are a period of massive social movements, uh, especially with regard to um, uh, the struggle for black equality and, of course, the anti-war movement once the uh, Vietnam War escalates in the middle of the 1960s. And so it's the clash and the uh, sort of confluence of that uh, change in the size and mission of higher education on top of two, uh, you know, huge social movements, uh, the uh, anti-war movement and the student movement, which really sort of grew out of that in part, and this huge expansion of higher education. So that was the main thesis of the book that I found after I had pretty much written it. Right, which is so often how it goes. Uh, <laughs> right, that's, uh, yeah, that's so well expressed. Um, and I mean, you're, I mean, this is, this is incredibly ambitious. Also sort of, um, doesn't even quite sell the extent to which this is this is a, such a fascinating book because you know as well as this overarching um history and, and vision and, and story there's just so much empirical detail in here which is absolutely fascinating and I think uh will be really surprising to a lot of readers certainly was to me um I mean for example you know, we, there's a lot we could talk about with, with, with regard to the Vietnam War. I mean, you, you say in your introduction that it's impossible to stress enough how thoroughly the Vietnam War permeated the awakening lives of student and faculty dissidents during the long 60s. Um, and yeah, that's very clear from your writing. Um, but there's also lots of surprising details that, that come out of that. So one of the parts of the book that certainly uh, surprised me and I thought was fascinating was the way that professors, um, along with their students and sometimes administration, uh, helped to resist the draft or what was seen as sort of unfair 
practices. Um, and there's some really inter interesting intersections there with grading practices and, you know, uh, yeah, other unexpected details. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Sure. One of the things that interested me was um, sort of the emergence of uh, student and faculty dissent during this period. And I was looking for the moment uh, when the anti-war movement uh, began. And one of the things that's very important in the uh, point that I make in the book very early on when I'm talking about Vietnam is that in the beginning of the war, nobody knew anything about Vietnam. Nobody. There, you know, it was this country that nobody understood. Uh, it had been a French colony, so all the sort of research, scholarly research, was in French. I, I had studied French history, so I could read it. But most people had no idea the background of it, that in fact what it was was the aftermath of an anti-colonial war of independence. Uh, but in any event, um, what happened was when the American government began to escalate the war, began to bomb both North and South Vietnam, uh, nobody really knew anything about it. And faculty members uh, who were already themselves politically engaged, uh, some of them had been active in the uh, civil rights movement, some of them had been active in an anti-nuclear testing movement, in the late 1950s and early 60s, McCarthyism had pretty much receded, not completely, but pretty much. And uh, students and uh, graduate students in particular and faculty members were beginning to become much more politically active. Uh, this was, of course, sparked above all by the civil rights movement in the late 50s and early 60s. But also students were and faculty members were concerned about uh, nuclear uh, weapons, uh, the testing of nuclear weapons, they were concerned about the Cuban Revolution. There were a lot of things going on, and people were becoming more aware of um, politics and more willing to act on their beliefs. And when the uh, Vietnam War escalated, it had been going on, essentially Americans have been intervening in Vietnam since the mid-50s, but when it escalates uh, in the spring of 1965, what's important to realize is nobody in the, really, nobody in the academic community knew anything about Vietnam. And a group of at political activists uh, at Michigan, actually, uh, University of Michigan, decided that um, what they would do, they knew it was wrong, they didn't know too much about it, but they would uh, bone up on it. A number of them were social scientists of one sort or another. And they would give themselves a quick course on Vietnam. And then they would um, teach their students. What they had planned to do was uh, hold a moratorium. They were going to cancel classes for a, a full day and just spend that day lecturing about Southeast Asia and why the war was wrong. Um, there was opposition to it. The uh, 
Michigan legislature opposed it. The president of the University of Michigan opposed it. So they decided instead of doing a moratorium, they would do what they called a teach-in and uh, hold uh, these meetings in the evening after classes. They weren't going to cancel their classes. And this movement spread. Um, dozens of campuses in the spring of 1965 had teach-ins. And this, in a sense, as a result, it got a lot of publicity. And uh, it really alerted not just students, not just other faculty, but the American public. Uh, they taught the American public what was wrong with Vietnam and why it should be opposed. It was a very important moment, and it's never been emphasized enough that the sort of activist phase of the anti-war movement, the first phase of the anti-war movement, began on American campuses with faculty members and uh, some graduate students as well, teaching students and their fellow faculty members and the broader public uh, what was wrong with the war, why they should oppose it. Now, that took several years for these lessons to sink in. But by the uh, late 1960s, uh, you would have to say the majority of the academic community opposed the war. Now, um, what I was looking for was um, how that manifested itself among students. And that clearly was through the draft. And the first set of student uh, activism against the war uh, was very was triggered by the fact that by the end of 1965, by the end of this first phase of uh, expansion and escalation. The American military was having trouble uh, finding recruits, uh, drafting people. The pool of eligible uh, young men, uh, they could see the limits. And students up until then had all had what was known as a 2S deferment, a student deferment. Uh, but um, in the beginning of 1965, the head of the Selective Service Committee, uh, whatever it's called, the head of Selective Service, the head of the draft, um, decided that uh, he would increase the pool by drafting the bottom quartile of each class, uh, each college class. Now that uh, create all of a sudden, uh, a whole bunch of students are eligible, uh, not just as they had been before. If you flunked, um, you know, uh, the grade F was a ticket to Vietnam, people viewed it as. But this was, you know, just people who were getting C's and things in the bottom of their class, um, you know, not, not, not flunking out of school. And so... Um, they protested for the first time because, and it's the first time they're protesting 
against their school's collaboration with the American state, with the American government. This is the first time, and they're doing it on campus. They are beginning to sit in uh, in administration offices, at, and not at, um, at important schools, at the University of Wisconsin, at the University of uh, Chicago, at a number of major institutions, um, which is important here to realize that the student movement began on what we would call today brand name campuses and then filtered down to regional schools um, and smaller institutions. But it was the big schools, the big urban schools like the City College of, Uni of New York that had these early demonstrations against uh, the draft and against the war. And actually they succeeded. Uh, in part they succeeded because faculty members felt pretty bad about giving a poor grade or as uh, one professor put it, just because a student couldn't uh, tell the difference between Pepin the Short and Charlemagne, he's supposed to go to Vietnam. Uh, so anyhow, it did show uh, some uh, that act activity on the part of students could make a difference because the government then dropped, not only dropped uh, this notion of uh, sort of the students who were uh, in the lower ranks of their um, uh, classes, but also began to think of ways around the draft. And ultimately, that is what killed the draft. Um, now, what's interesting when we think about the kinds of act student activity that uh, characterizes the 60s, you know, students taking over offices, students uh, demonstrating, students shutting down classes, students even, um, uh, you know, uh, engaging in arson or other forms of property uh, damage. Uh, we assume that a lot of it is anti-war activity, which it is. Uh, students were uh, upset about the university allowing recruiters for the military uh, services, for um, defense industries, for the CIA, to hold interviews, job interviews for graduating seniors on campus. Uh, they tried to shut down those interviews, and often there were riots, there, was, uh, there were arrests. Uh, so we're seeing um, more and more student activity related to the war, but there are other things that the students were opposed to that they engaged in nonviolent direct action with regard to. Um, probably the most important was, of course, the uh, struggle for black equality. Uh, this occurred, uh, in, again, here's something that uh, probably people weren't aware of, I wasn't really aware of it until I thought about it more closely when I'm studying it, was American higher education was essentially segregated up until the mid-60s, that uh, African-American students 
got their education at these historically black colleges and universities, mainly located in the South, mainly uh, under-resourced. They didn't have the kinds of uh, uh, laboratories or libraries or very well-educated faculty. Um, they uh, really were, and students in these HBCUs were aware of the fact that they were getting a second-class education. At the same time, the majority white schools didn't accept blacks. And this you could see throughout American higher education. The school I went to, Radcliffe College, uh, was uh, there were 300 women in my class, I think, two blacks. One was a foreign student from the Caribbean and the other was passing for white. Uh, that was the case throughout American higher education. Tiny groups of uh, students, many of them athletes, it, uh, were the only black students on campus. And when the civil rights movement began to take off, and of course it had its uh, sort of uh, zenith uh, in one of these HBCUs in the South, where the students themselves began using sit-ins, began using nonviolent direct action to push for integration of public facilities. Uh, this was a very important phase of the civil rights movement, and it was uh, a very important part of the American student movement, very important. And in the 1960s, uh, university administrators uh, and the rest of the country as well began to realize that uh, higher education shouldn't be segregated the way it is, and they began to try to bring in more black students, but they didn't know what to do with them. And so what begins to happen is the black students find themselves on campuses without having the kind of social facilities they needed to have a genuine uh, college experience. They are barred from fraternities. They try to set up their own on some campuses. Uh, the administration won't let them. They say that's segregation. Uh, you know, as if the uh, lily white fraternities and sororities weren't segregating. Uh, you have, so you have black students beginning to push very strongly, not just for um, more black students, but more black faculty, more courses or in black studies that look at black communities that give these students and the rest of the uh, academic community, the rest of the campus as well, uh, some sense of what were the problems that uh, the black community was facing, what kind of history uh, had occurred. Uh, so it's really opening up the curriculum. That's what they're pushing for. The main demand these black students were making was for more black studies, more black faculty, and more uh, admissions of black students, and more facilities for them. Uh, and uh, the, these demonstrations often uh, 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. At schools like San Francisco State or City College uh, led to uh, the use of police, uh, especially in at uh, black uh, HBCUs in the South. There was uh, more violence than anywhere else. Uh, when police come came on campus during the 60s, that was the moment uh, when the violence escalated, by the way. And I devoted a whole chapter of the book to the kinds of things that students were doing and the kinds of demands they were making. Because there were demands related to the war, related to the university's um, collaboration, whether direct or indirect, with the uh, military industrial state, as it was called. Um, there were also uh, demonstrations uh, and demands by black students, but there was a third sort of uh, criteria, a third set of categories that uh, students were upset about um, that we don't usually think about as a sort of central to the student movement. And that was the kinds of restrictions that they themselves were facing on their own campuses. Um, they uh, had parietal rules. Uh, women were not allowed into men's dormitories. Women had to be uh, in their own dormitories by 9 or 10 o'clock at night unless they were in the library. Uh, there were dress codes. Uh, my own uh, uni my own college required uh, its students to wear dresses. We couldn't wear uh, pants uh, below the uh, second floor of our dormitories, um, except on snow days. Uh, men had dress codes. They had to wear uh, jackets and ties to eat in the dining halls or uh, go to class at uh, many schools. This wasn't just the Ivy Leagues. Um, at Kent State, for example, a uh, public school in Ohio, women had to wear heels and stockings. Uh, we didn't have pantyhose in those days. Heels and stockings uh, to the dormitory dining halls on Sundays. Uh, so there are lots of rules, and students are very upset about them. There are also rules on the kind of political uh, and cultural expression uh, that students uh, were allowed to uh, have. Uh, school newspapers were um, 
censored sometimes. Uh, and probably the single most important student um, uh, demonstration of the entire 60s took place over just this issue of the student right to political action on their campuses. And that predated uh, the anti-war movement, in fact. That took place in the summer of 1964 at Berkeley. And it's absolutely central to my story uh, for a number of reasons. Berkeley, it was the preeminent public research university in the United States. Um, perhaps the preeminent uh, research university in the United States, the uh, dean of the faculty at Harvard at the time was supposedly quoted as saying, the day the sun shines in Berkeley is a dark day at Harvard. In other words, uh, Berkeley thought of itself as number one, and many people thought of it as number one as well big school. So what that meant was that by the early 60s, it was beginning to have a large enough critical mass of left-wing students and faculty to begin to take action. And they did over the fact that Berkeley, although it was a major, major research university, uh, still had a, a prohibition. It was more repressive politically than sort of any other big school in the United States, which is a major con uh, sort of contradiction here. But students were not allowed uh, to recruit other students for political activity on the Berkeley campus. They could not allow political speech on campus. Uh, Candidates for president were not allowed to speak on campus in Berkeley. It was very repressive. And so when um, students began recruiting for activity in the fall of 1964, at the peak, the peak of the civil rights movement, um, the university cracked down on them. And the students mobilized. And uh, the administration, uh, they tried to negotiate. The administration would go back on some of its agreements with the students and was extremely repressive. And at a certain point, the students took over the administration building in the beginning of December 1964. And um, the administration called the police to clear them out. This was the first time this had happened. It had happened at a major, major school with lots of publicity. And what I also discovered, which was very important for sort of the future of American higher education, actually, was at that time, on the Berkeley faculty were a number of major public intellectuals who were writing about it. They were involved in the student movement. They were faculty members who, believe, who were liberals. What you have to realize is many faculty members during this period thought of themselves as liberals, thought they supported the civil rights movement, uh, opposed the uh, Vietnam War, 
but they opposed students using nonviolent direct action against their universities, um, even though they may have supported what the students were uh, demanding. They still thought the tactics were so bad. And they focused, what happened was they focused on the tactics rather than the substance of the student movement. And that's a very important distinction that not too many people make. Um, they did say that, yes, we, 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 we want a negotiated settlement in Vietnam. They supported that fact, even liberal faculty members, but they didn't support the students' demands. And they thought, and they were very, uh, what should we say, uh, widely published. They had a lot of, got a lot of attention because they were on the Berkeley campus. They saw the campus totally disrupted by the uh, free speech movement. Even though they supported free speech for the students, they didn't support the way the students were demanding it. And so what you get is already in 1964 and 1965, a kind of scenario for the student movement that is very hostile to it on the part of many of the nation's most widely published public intellectuals. People, uh, they're not household names now. They were at the time uh, Seymour Martin Lipset, Nathan Glazer, and they were publishing in mainstream magazines in the uh, New York Times Sunday Magazine, which was a very important venue for them. Uh, they're interviewed for the in the press all the time, and um, this is very important thing that they this was a ready-made scenario. They're saying these students are crazy. They're irrational. That was the uh, language they were using. They were saying what universities exist for is to maintain rationality, and the students are not being rational, but they were. You know, they were uh, trying to get attention for what was wrong with the war. And they're not getting, uh, nothing's happening. Uh, in fact, it was. I mean, the student movement did have an impact. Uh, when Nixon comes in, he tries to, quote unquote, Vietnam, Viet, he tries a, a program called Vietnamization of uh, pulling out American troops, relying mainly on air power and a, a badly trained South Vietnamese army. And eventually, um, the Americans were forced to pull out. Uh, but um, it took over a decade. It took a long time. And um, the student movement is there on the front pages throughout this period, which has a uh, rather bad um, impact on public opinion. Because the media, as we know, uh, likes conflict. It likes to uh, have something 
dramatic, you know, students throwing rocks at policemen, policemen uh, beating students over the head with their uh, billy clubs, uh, you know, a nice quiet march. I went on many of a night, many nice quiet marches during my 60s. I never saw any violence. Um, you know, there were people taking our photographs, but in fact, they were uh, FBI member, undercover people who were um, trying to, you know, amass files on those of us who protested the war. Um, but it, it wasn't on the front pages. Um, but, you know, the big uh, demonstrations, the moments where the police come in, especially a school like Columbia, which is in New York City, which is the headquarters of so many, uh, you know, television networks. Um, uh, during the Columbia uh, takeover, where students were protesting a number of things, both uh, Columbia's expansion into uh, uh, the uh, neighboring uh, black areas, residential areas, and its decision to build a gym on a park in the middle of Harlem. Uh, that, uh, so black students were upset about uh, how uh, this major university is just, you know, sort of ed edging members of the uh, Harlem community out of their homes. Uh, there, people were upset about the presence on campus of a uh, defense department installation called the Institute for Defense Analysis, in which very high, uh, very prestigious uh, members of the physics department were doing consulting for uh, the um, military during the Vietnam War. They were protesting as well uh, the disciplinary actions that had already been taken against left-wing students. Uh, that was a major source of unrest. Uh, one of the major demands of students was uh, against uh, a disciplinary actions that they had no part of. They wanted uh, to participate in the uh, actions of the university that involve them, that, that involve their social lives, that involve their educational lives. So many um, student demonstrations were often against the firing of uh, popular professors, mainly left-wing professors. Uh, you'd get a demonstration, big one, uh, at the University of Chicago against the refusal to give tenure to a very popular left-wing professor. So you're getting a whole bunch of courses, but what you're getting on your television screens in the nightly news is students breaking windows, is bloodshed, is uh, burning down ROTC buildings, uh, Reserve Officer Training Corps buildings. Um, and the American people are beginning to turn against higher education. And what happens is a number of politicians uh, realize that this is an issue that they can get uh, support, that they can get political support from the public. And of course, the most important uh, politician in this early period who 
uh, uses this as a, a platform is none other than Ronald Reagan when he runs for governor of California in 1966. He's running against the University of California at Berkeley and he wins. And what you get is politicians from then on uh, running against the student movement, saying, um, you know, university faculty and administrators are too soft on the students, that they have to crack down on them, that they should have uh, brought the police in at the minute the students said, we want to, uh, you know, restore the jobs of Professor X or Y. Uh, and what do they do? They begin to turn off the faucets, as it were, up until the mid-late 60s. Um, universities could do no wrong. Uh, state legislators loved their schools, especially if they had winning football teams, and they were happy to uh, pour money into new buildings, into larger faculties. That stopped. And funding didn't stop, but schools kept growing, and the amount of money that state legislatures were willing to give uh, institutions of higher learning did not increase that much. And so what you're going to see at the same time, again, everything is interconnected, at the same time, the American economy is beginning to change. The sort of... Uh, growth of uh, manufacturing industrial jobs is beginning to decline. Jobs are beginning to go overseas, first to Japan, then to uh, other parts of East Asia. Um, and there's a, a reluctance to increase taxes. There's a, a sort of uh, imposition of a neoliberal ideology, which says the uh, problem with the United States is uh, not the government. The government is the problem. The government is, is too big. We've got to cut down. We've got to cut down on spending for higher education. And what you're getting is a regime of neoliberal austerity that is depriving American higher education of um, the resources that it formerly had, the, of the, its ability to offer a high quality, uh, universal uh, mass higher education. Because where, if the state legislatures are not um, funding universities as they had been before, where do universities get their operating uh, expenses from? Tuition. So that's accounting for this rise in tuition, uh, rise in, steward, in student debt, a uh, increasing uh, inability to afford higher education on the part of um, masses of Americans. During the 60s, uh, many schools were free. The University of California was tuition free, essentially. Uh, the uh, municipal colleges of New York uh, were completely free. That ends. 
And so what you're seeing is a, a more expensive university that is not getting the resources it once had. And what do they do? Besides raise tuition, they're not increasing the size of their full-time faculty. They're not adding new full-time faculty. They're adding what is called contingent faculty members, people who are part-time, who lack the tenure that most full-time faculty have, that therefore lack academic freedom as a result. And um, at the moment, uh, the kind of full-time tenure and tenure-track uh, positions that had once characterized higher education uh, have shrunk to only about 25% of the American faculty. The rest are what we call today gig workers, but probably making less money. They're part-time. They often have to teach at several different universities. They don't have time for office hours. They have huge classes. They can't offer the kind of individualized attention that a um, faculty member who is there uh, on permanent uh, tenure uh, or tenure track jobs. Um, and the quality of American higher education is also declining, even as its uh, cost is rising and as uh, fac faculty jobs are now becoming uh, gig jobs, you know, like an Uber uh, driver, except probably less secure and paying less for all we know. Uh, you know, it's a, a very different system than it was in the 1960s. And though I don't want to say that the problems with American higher education today, which are legion, legion are the result entirely of a backlash against the 60s, that certainly played a major role in the sort of uh, destroying the uh, privileged and uh, the amount of respect that higher education once had. It no longer has that respect, even though it's considered absolutely necessary for a white-collar, uh, middle-class career. So we're stuck at the moment with a, a fairly dysfunctional institution in a fairly dysfunctional society that really needs what higher education could provide in terms of a sort of civic education for voters so they can tell the difference between fake news and real news, uh, so they can uh, sort of think about how they want their society to exist without these crazy, how they can assess these crazy, uh, uh, you know, uh, conspiracy theories that are driving so much of American politics and really threatening American doc, uh, democracy in a way that, uh, as I've said, because uh, I'm always asked, is today worse than McCarthyism? And I say, yes, it really is. So we're living in a bad time. And at least what we have to do is begin to understand why 
and then we have to take action. Right. Well, on that note, and you've done a fantastic job. I just want to acknowledge of, uh, we talked, we talked a bit beforehand about the questions I, I wanted to ask Ellen and Ellen did an incredible job of preempting all of them and going beyond. So thank you uh, for being such an incredible interviewee uh, uh, on, on that front. But there is one thing that uh, you haven't yet preempted and I want to get in there um, is that you mentioned in your acknowledgements that there was a lot of material that didn't make it into the book Right. Um, what would you have most liked to include in the book? And and maybe that also is going to have some bearing on our present day situation with regard to universities. That's something you could talk about. OK, several things, um, which I, some of which I've just talked about, which is this backlash against the universities. I mean, Today, we're seeing uh, state legislatures in Texas and Florida and Oklahoma, you know, passing laws against um, teaching, what do they call it, uh, divisive issues. Uh, what are those divisive issues? They're teaching things like black history. They're teaching things like, um, you know, uh, sociology, they're teaching about race, the nation's racial past, they are teaching about uh, sexuality and gender, and uh, so-called critical race theory, which of course they're not teaching about, but uh, it's been banned now in uh, K through 12 uh, classes, as well as often in uh, colleges and universities. Um, what we're seeing is a backlash against uh, what would have been the last chapter of my book, which was the way in which American higher education uh, and American intellectual life uh, was influenced by the 60s, by uh, the uh, adding of, uh, you know, uh, black history, black studies, ethnic studies, all these ways in which we're looking now at our own society and saying, hey, wait a minute, what's wrong? How can we fix it? And that universities are the only place these days, especially as the media is continuing to shrink. Uh, you know, as a traditional media is continuing to shrink. Universities are really the only places where these important questions are being looked at. Uh, and the questions are being asked. Um, what has also happened as a result of the 60s, and one of the things that I would have liked to have put into the book but really only mentioned in a kind of epilogue, is the fact that as the 60s is um, being, uh, as movements for greater democratization within American society are occurring, especially the civil rights movement, the movement for black equality, the black power movement, uh, and of course the anti-war movement, but the later women's movement, which begins in the 60s, but really uh, becomes crucial in a little bit later, uh, but certainly needs to be looked at here. Um, as American society becomes 
more democratized. There's also a pushback. And that pushback is not just a sort of a kind of populist attack, but comes in part from the business community, which is afraid that there's too much federal regulation uh, with regard to ecology, with regard to pollution, uh, with regard to all kinds of things. They want to get rid of that regulation and they're pushing back and they're diverting attention to uh, what's going on in higher education. And they're uh, concerned about higher education, about research in um, ecology, about things that uh, will require more regulation, actually. And um, a movement develops within the business community among a sort of right-wing oil people like the Koch brothers, uh, within right-wing philanthropic foundations, to create an alternative system to American higher education. There is a, I hate to use the word conspiracy, maybe the word is a movement, but it's nonetheless coming from the development of alternative institutions that claim to be supplying expertise. And what are they doing? They're creating so-called experts who will denigrate the notion of climate change or uh, talk about, well, pollution really isn't so bad, um, you know, things like that. They're uh, trying to divert uh, attention, of course, uh, from gender issues, and we're seeing uh, a number of rather serious uh, moments here as well, Uh, needless to say. uh, And they've been uh, active, this sort of right-wing crusade against the 60s, against the movements of the 60s, have been active not just in higher education, of course, but within uh, the legal profession and the federal judiciary, and uh, dare I say it, the Supreme Court. So here we are, you know, a week into realizing that we're about to lose our right to legal safe um, abortions in many parts of the country. And I should note, just for um, the record, that I had an illegal abortion back in the day when they were not legal. Um, And it cost a lot of money. Uh, So anyhow, what I want to say is that um, we all have a dog in this fight and we have to work collectively. What I'm doing, uh, you might ask, what's your next book project? And it turns out to be a very short book modeled on some of the books that faculty members wrote right in the beginning of the Vietnam War, where they uh, were explaining the Vietnam War. Well, what my book, and I'm working with a number of other faculty members uh, as well, is devoted to trying to encourage faculty members to organize themselves and push back against these, um, what are called, uh, educational gag orders. 
these rules and regulations, these attempts to censor what gets taught in American life, because we need this kind of academic freedom to be able to talk about crucial controversial issues and fight back. We need knowledge, and the knowledge comes in universities, from universities, and we've got to fight for the freedom of universities to do what they're doing. And so that's what my next book is about. It's to provide ammunition for faculty members and other concerned citizens to fight back for the restoration of American higher education. Right, and this book we're talking about today, I mean, provides some incredibly important lessons, maybe models to follow, not to follow, cautionary tales, all the rest of it for people looking to do that. So another thing that makes it such an incredible contribution. Um, I think that's, yeah, there's so much more we could talk about, but I think that's a good place for us to end for now until the next book. Um, it's been wonderful talking with you today, Ellen. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you everyone else for tuning in today. Uh, once again, my name is Katriona Gold and I've been speaking with Ellen Schrecker about her new book, The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 1960s, which was published with the University of Chicago Press in 2021. I highly recommend picking up a copy from your local bookstore, direct from the press or from any other ethical retailer or requesting a copy from your local university library. Thanks for listening. And thanks again, Ellen, for joining me today. Okay, my pleasure. And if anybody uh, buys the book, you can read chap chapters separately. You don't <laughs> have to read all 400 pages at one shot. Yeah, that would be, uh, yeah, that would be a lot to digest. Anyway, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Ellen. Um, and yeah, highly encourage our listeners to pick up a copy. All right, until next time. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.